Amen. Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of First Timothy in the New Testament. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a, a short series on stewardship. We've looked at the stewardship of time, the stewardship of relationships of children. This morning, we look at what probably is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of that word stewardship, the stewardship of money, wealth, our financial resources. Hear God's word. We'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, and then verses 17 through 19. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17 now, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Father, these words are searching, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and would help us to see who we are. Help us to see what you have called us to be. Help us to see, O oh Lord, your goodness, your grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In the early 90s, a Christian band named Sixpence None the Richer came out with their first album, The Fatherless and the Widow. Uh, a beautiful song on that album uh, is based on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I sing it every Thursday with our children at CCS at our Come Together time. Uh, eventually, this band went mainstream uh, they became famous for their song, Kiss Me, and a cover of There She Goes. Now, I have no idea if this band is still famous. I have no idea if this band is still Christian. Right? But anyone who takes the time to discover the meaning of the band's name might become a Christian and certainly is going to learn something about the God of the Bible and about stewardship. For you see, the name of that band, Sixpence None the Richer, comes from a, a paragraph in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, uh, that's related to our topic this morning. Let me read that paragraph to you. He writes this, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it's really like. 
It's like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me a sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Now, sixpence was a sixpenny coin back in the day. We would say, give me $5 to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, says Lewis. And he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper. But only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. Sixpence, none the richer. Lewis's illustration beautifully describes a biblical understanding of stewardship, particularly stewardship of our wealth. And that's what I want us to consider this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's the question I want us to seek to answer. How can we be faithful stewards of the financial resources that God has entrusted to each one of us? Part of the answer to that question is by remembering three things that we find here in our text. First, remember that you are a steward. Second, remember that stewardship is first a matter of the heart. And third, remember why God has given you your wealth. So first, remember that you are a steward. The the starting point of being a faithful steward is not to forget that you actually are a steward. Nothing you have, nothing you possess is ultimately yours. It is all on temporary loan from God. It is all a gift from him. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? He drives the same point home here, doesn't he? Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul states the obvious, which even our our children know. We are born with nothing, nothing of our own. And no matter how much we might accumulate during our lives, we leave this world with nothing of our own. Job put it best, didn't he? In Job 1, verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Or Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15 says, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Contrary to the thinking of the pharaohs who thought that by being buried under the, the pyramids with all their wealth, they could take it with them. No You can't take it with you because it's not yours. Just like the the silverware, the dishes, the glasses at your favorite restaurant, they're not yours. You get to use them temporarily when you eat there, but if you tried to walk out with them because you really like them, because you wanted to have some in your house, they wouldn't let you. They're not yours. So if we start with nothing, if we leave with nothing, then there is nothing that we have during our life that we can point to and say, that's mine. No, it's all a gift from God. Now, Paul states this explicitly, doesn't he, that it's all a gift from God. Verse 17, he says, God richly provides us with everything. He is the source. He is the giver. He is the provider. We are but stewards and managers entrusted for a little while with whatever amount of resources the Lord chooses to give us. We heard David confess this understanding in verse 14 of what we read this morning. For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. Anything we give to the Lord, it is his first already. If we forget this point, brothers and sisters, if 
We forget this reality that we go wrong from the very beginning. We're like a man who wants to, to, to line off a, a football field. Right? But he begins off by about a degree. Well, by the time he's walked 120 yards, that rectangle is now a trapezoid. Right? If we're off on this reality that we are stewards, we're off tremendously. The only way to be a faithful steward is to remember that you are a steward, not an owner. It's not your money that you're spending and saving and giving, but it's God's. And on the last day, you will give an account for every penny that was entrusted to you. We must remember that we are all going to die. And just like when you go through airport security, you're going to have to take everything out of your pockets. You're going to have to take your belt off. You're going to have to take your shoes off. Imagine you're going to take everything off, right? But the thing is, you're not going to get it on the other side because nothing will remain yours. None of it was yours to begin with. None of it is yours when you die. When you breathe your last breath, no matter how wealthy you are, you will leave all of your possessions behind. Maybe you've heard the, the old story of the wealthy widow who passed away. And at the funeral, a man came up to the, the pastor and said, pastor, you know how much she left behind? And the pastor said, everything. She left everything behind. So that's the first thing we need to remember to be faithful stewards, that we are stewards. The second thing that we'll spend a little more time on is this. We must remember that stewardship is first a matter of the heart. Paul drives that home to us here in this passage. Now, let's think about the context of these words. Paul speaks about money here at the end of 1 Timothy, and you wonder why? Why does he do that? Well, the context is that Paul has been speaking to Timothy about the false teachers that are there in Ephesus, where Timothy pastors. And you notice in verse 5 that he warns them particularly about their greed. He says, Timothy, these, these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Right? They're using religion to line their own pockets. And so Paul takes this opportunity to tell Timothy and, and to tell all who read this letter what those who want to be rich, verses 6 to 10, and those who are already rich, verses 17 to 19, need to hear about their relationship to money. And not surprisingly to anyone who's read what Jesus had to say about money, Paul's words focus first and foremost upon the heart, the inner man, the affections, the spiritual motivations that drive our material choices and behaviors. And you see this focus in, in three different ways. You see Paul's call to contentment. You see Paul's warning of the, the dangers of desiring to be rich and loving money. And you see Paul's command about haughtiness and hoping, trusting in money. Let's, let's think about these three things. First, Paul's call to commitment. Now, as we said, the false teachers think that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul says, you know what? In a sense, they're right. Godliness is, is a great gain. Great gain. It pays huge dividends, huge returns. If, if you are also content with, satisfied with, not having as much money as you might want or as much as your neighbors might have. See, Paul's talking about spiritual gain. It, it, godliness is great gain if accompanied with contentment, if a part of your godliness is contentment, then there's great gain. If you're not content with what God has given you, even if it's only the necessities of life, food and clothing and shelter, 
then your supposed godliness will be of no benefit to you at all, he's saying. What is contentment? Contentment is a fruit of the Holy Spirit that God works within the hearts of his people. Contentment is a heart posture of submission to and delight in what God and his wisdom has chosen to provide for you, no matter what your circumstances might be. Contentment is knowing, as Paul says in Philippians 4.13, that we can do all things. We can live in any financial up or down through Christ who strengthens us. Now, of course, as our children know, by nature, right, we are discontented. We're grumblers. We are complainers. We're unsatisfied, dissatisfied. We're always wanting more than we are given. We're always jealous of others who have more than we do. And if you think that, that getting more money makes you more content, right, think again. Perhaps you've heard the name of John Rockefeller, founder of Standard Oil Company, America's first billionaire. He was once asked a question by a reporter, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Perhaps you've heard his answer, just a little bit more, right, just a little bit more. But actually, it's probably a lot more. Just last month, a survey was taken where people were asked, what salary would it take to make you feel happy? And it turns out that the more you made, the more you needed to make you feel happy. Those who made $25,000 said, you know what, if I had $50,000, I'd be happy. But those who made $200,000 said, you know, if I had $350,000, I'd be happy. Think about that. Think about that. The more you made, the more you needed to make in order to feel happy. But of course, even $350,000 won't make you happy if you don't have a con contentment in Jesus Christ. Again, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves abundance will not be satisfied with its income. Philip Ryken, who is the president of Wheaton College, uh, writes that his mother-in-law had this saying hanging over her sink. And it's absolutely true. Contentment is knowing that if I am not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want either. If I'm not satisfied with what I have now in God's providence, then I will not be satisfied with what I want if I get it. And so especially in our affluent, materialistic, consumeristic society, which constantly pressures you to keep up with your peers. Stewardship starts with guarding the heart against discontentment. But there's a second way that Paul wants to point us to the heart as, as the, 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 the foundation of proper biblical stewardship. And it's this, by his warning of the dangers of desiring and loving money. Four times in verses 9 through 10, Paul speaks of, of the desires, the loves of the heart. He, he, he speaks of those who desire to be rich, and, and that in turn leads to many senseless and harmful desires. He speaks of the love of money. He calls it a craving. What is it that desires and loves and craves? It's the heart. It's the inner man. It's, it's the core of who we are. And therefore, it is the heart that we must keep watch on if we want to be faithful stewards. Now, think with me. People become rich for all sort of non-sinful reasons. Sometimes folks inherit large sums of money. 
Sometimes folks are very frugal and they save and invest over time and eventually end up with large sums of wealth. Sometimes folks work very diligently to, to give to people a product or a service that, that they want so much they are willing to, to, to gladly give away their money in order to have, right? You notice in verse 17, Paul doesn't tell the rich in verse 17 that they're living in sin because they're rich. He doesn't tell them to divest themselves of all of their wealth. But Paul's concern, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're poor and want to be rich or whether you're rich and want to be richer is that you would look at your heart, that you would search your heart, that you would search the desires, the motives of the inner man, of the inner woman. Now, is it possible to, to want to get rich from pure and altruistic motives without any greed or covetousness or lust in your heart? I mean, I mean maybe. Right? Maybe you sit there in your heart and you say, I want to be rich so I can do incredible good for the Lord and for his kingdom. Perhaps. But it's very unlikely, isn't it, that those motives will be or will remain pure. And it's always, always a sin to love money. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, verse 24? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you crave wealth, if you love money, Paul says that you are playing with fire. You're opening yourself up to this death spiral of falling into temptation to sin, which leads to being caught in Satan's snare, which leads to other foolish and harmful desires, which leads to ruin and to destruction, if not in this age, then certainly in the age to come. When you love money, Paul is telling us, it's as if you're pouring rooting compounds onto all the idolatrous affections that are going to grow into all sorts of wickedness, right? selfishness, pride, bitter envy and jealousy, Sabbath-breaking, family dissensions, laziness, hatred and murder, sexual morality, fraud and, and lying and theft and gambling and cheating and stealing, covetousness. All these wickedness, all these sins flow from this root, the love of money. And ultimately, Paul says there in verse 10, you are in danger of wandering away from the faith, of impaling yourself with pain, with heartache, with grief. Solomon says the same thing, doesn't he? In Proverbs 28, verse 20, he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. And if you know your Bibles, you know it's littered with the corpses of those who longed to be rich, who loved money. Think of Achan after the battle of Jericho. Think of Ahab when he went to Naboth and said, I want your vineyard. And Naboth said, no, I'm not going to sell you my family land. And how Ahab pouted and eventually killed Naboth. Think of Greedy Gehazi running after Naaman's chariot. Think of Ananias and Sapphira lying about how much they had sold their property for. Think of Demas who loved this present world, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. Or of the thorny soil hearers and the parable of the soils who, who were choked out by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches and bore no fruit. Or perhaps the clearest example Judas, 
Judas, who was the disciples' accountant, he, he had control of the, of the money bag, the wallet, the checkbook. And he used to dip into it and steal from it. And finally, for 30 pieces of silver, he sold our Lord and Savior Jesus to death. You see, every single one of those stories and all of Paul's words here should cause us to be so vigilant, vigilant at any time we see the desire for wealth creep up in our hearts, the love of money creep up in our hearts. Look, if you're a homeowner, think of how vigilant you are if you hear water dripping in your house, if you see mold on sheetrock, if you see water spots on your ceiling, if you're a homeowner, what are you going to do? You're going to try to investigate and figure out what's the source. Like, that ought not be there. I shouldn't be hearing dripping if nothing is running, right? We're vigilant. We're determined to, to figure out where is this coming from. But look, y'all, the damage that the love of money will do is far greater, far more long-lasting than the damage that water can do to your house. We must be vigilant over our hearts. The love of money, the desire to be rich is dangerous, Paul says. And so these, these words and those stories, those, those figures that I mentioned, they should drive us to pray the prayer of Agur in Proverbs chapter 30. Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I might not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So see, Paul is saying it's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about the heart of contentment, the heart of, of lusting and loving and, and craving and desiring to be rich. And then there's one last way. He points to the heart. And, and you see it there in, in verse 17. It's his command about haughtiness and hoping in money. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides them and us, all of us, with everything to enjoy. See, Paul here highlights two sins that the rich are especially prone to. And they're sins of the heart, aren't they? Pride and a false reliance on the gift rather than the giver. These are heart sins. No one's going to see these sins. Now, sure, eventually they're going to make their way out into the open and your relationship with other people, or how you respond to economic downturns. But even if you can keep them hidden from others, the Lord sees. The Lord sees them. He knows your heart, and he wants you to know your heart. He wants you to see and to kill these sins of pride and haughtiness and hoping and trusting in your wealth. Isn't it easy for those who are rich to look down on the poor, right, to have an inflated view of their own self-importance, I think, well, obviously, look at me. I'm rich because of how smart a businessman I am, how wise I was in my investments, how hard I've worked. The poor are just lazy and stupid. But what does Moses say to Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8? He says, beware. Beware when you have eaten and are satisfied and you've built good houses and lived in them and your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies. Beware lest your heart become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. And you say in your heart, my power 
and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember, says Moses, the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. He is the one. He is the one that has given you your mind. He is the one who has given you your physical abilities and health and strength. He is the one who has given you the time that you have, all the providential breaks which the world calls luck. He is the one who has given you favor with your customers, all your relationships. None of that comes from yourself. If you are wealthy, it's because of those things. Your determination, your work ethic, your drive, all of those things. But where does that all come from? But from the Lord. And so we must not allow our hearts to be filled with haughtiness. But, but nor must we allow our hearts to be filled with this false trust and hope and, and, and reliance upon wealth that Paul says is fleeting, unreliable, uncertain. Never should we lean upon something as uncertain as our wealth. Some of you know firsthand how uncertain wealth is. You had it, and all of a sudden you didn't have it. At my aunt's funeral the other week, I was talking to my uncle about what happened to him and to my own father back in the 80s. They had grown up in a very wealthy family. After college at LSU, they were doing great sort of in the real estate world, building apartment complexes, engaging in all these different investments. And then all of a sudden, and some of you remember this, the prices of oil and gas dropped. The economy in Louisiana tanked. The savings and loan crisis hit. This is one thing I didn't know about. There were tax laws that were, were changed in, in the mid-80s, tax laws that evidently made it very difficult for them to do the business that they were doing of commercial real estate. This perfect storm hits, and all of a sudden, they can't make money. They lose money. They go bankrupt. My life changed completely. Ultimately, that led to my own parents' divorce. Wealth is uncertain. Money is uncertain. You have no idea what's going to happen to you economically today, tomorrow, a year from now. You have no idea what's going to happen to your industry, your company. So you must never set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. In the words of Jeremiah 2, money is a broken cistern that can hold no water. It can never satisfy us. If you worship it, it will fail you. It is a false security system. Because why? It's merely the gift. It's not the giver. It's merely the blessing. It's not the blessed one. It's merely the creature and not the creator. And so here's the question right, that Paul is wanting to drive home as you think about what does it mean to be a faithful steward? Who do you love? What do you love? In whom and what do you place your trust? In whom and what is your ultimate joy, your ultimate happiness and satisfaction and contentment? Maybe there's another C.S. Lewis quote coming to your mind from his essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition and money when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So faithful stewards, remember 
That stewardship is first and foremost a matter of the heart, of the inner man, the inner woman. Well, finally, to be a faithful steward, you must remember why God has given you your wealth. I still remember my mom as a young boy teaching me, look, whenever you make money, you give 10, you save 10, and you spend the rest. Right? Those three categories, giving, saving, spending, right, are the same categories that Paul lays out for us here, though in a, a little bit different order. Paul says that God gives us our wealth first so that we can enjoy it. Did you catch that in verse 17? God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is no miser. He's not stingy. He's not worried that he might run out of money. And so he doesn't want to give us stuff. And if he gives it to us, hey, don't, don't enjoy that too much. No. The Christian life is not to be an ascetic life. A life of, of only saying no, only denying oneself, only abstinence. If you turn back a chapter or two to chapter four, you would hear Paul warn against these false teachers who forbid marriage and sexuality that's within marriage and who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God has given us everything to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy his good gifts. Again, Ecclesiastes, I love how Solomon puts it over and over in this book. Here's one example. He says, here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him. For this is his reward, to eat, to drink, to enjoy yourself. Now, to be sure, enjoyment is not self-indulgence. It's not debauchery. We are called to deny ourselves, to sacrifice, to live simply for the sake of the gospel. We're to glorify God in all that we do, but we glorify God by enjoying Him, enjoying His good gifts. It's interesting. I didn't know if I would have time for this or not, but I do. You know, I grew up in Baton Rouge. Um, you know, Mardi Gras is a big holiday down there, right? Do you, do you, have you ever thought about the fact, like, what is Mardi Gras? Fat Tuesday, right? And it comes before what? Ash Wednesday. It comes before Lent, the Roman Catholic season of Lent. Why is Mardi Gras such a debaucherous holiday? It's because for the next 40 days, you have to abstain. Do you see how when you focus upon this, this, this life of abstinence, right? Especially you have this seasonal piety that says we've got to give up something. Then, then what are you going to do? Man, before I have to give it up, I'm going to blow it out the day before, right? And so that's sort of a, of a mindset that, that God really doesn't care for us. God has sort of, you know, he's against us and he, all he wants us to do is like give stuff up all the time. Well, of course, it's going to lead to you saying like, let's go have as much fun, as much, you know, drunken, debaucherous fun as we can have. But God says, no, I've given you all things to enjoy, not to indulge yourself, because you don't have to abstain in some ceremonial, ritualistic sort of way. You are called to live a moderate, balanced life of, 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 of self-denial and self-enjoyment. Not indulgence, but enjoyment from the gift and the goodness of God. That's why he's given you your wealth. But there's a second reason, isn't there? You see it in verse 18. God has given us our wealth so that we can do good to others with it. 
They are to do good, he says. This is what Paul wants Timothy to teach those who are rich. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And Jesus in Matthew 10 says, freely you have received, freely you are to give. If you have financial resources, God has given them to you, not just for you to enjoy, but for others to enjoy. You have a responsibility to use your wealth for good. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, Paul says, you will be enriched by God in every way to be generous in every way. You're called to use your wealth to be a blessing to others. You are called to use the time that your wealth affords you to be a blessing to others. See, if God has richly provided you with all things to enjoy, then you are now free to let others enjoy those things with you. You are free because you know it's, it's not yours. And because you know it's not your ultimate security. It's not the thing that you're trusting and clinging to, thinking if I give this away, I won't have it for myself. No, you're free to give it away, knowing that God will provide for you. He'll provide all that you need. He's already given you your wealth so that you might imitate him in giving it away, doing good to those in need. And then the last thing that Paul says, the last reason that Paul gives for why God has given us our wealth, you see in verse 19. So we might save it up for the future. And certainly we're called to save for the future in this life, right? for ourselves, for our children, even this own passage. Paul says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever. Right? Parents are called to save up for their children. But that's not what Paul's talking about here, is it? Now, Paul is saying that we, as we generously share, we're storing up treasures for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we might take hold of that which is life. Indeed. Look, you put money into your IRA, into your 401k, into your retirement account, and you know that that money is not lost. Right? It's not being flushed down the toilet. You know that it is being stored up for you in the future. Paul is saying the same thing is true. As you give your money away to those in need, as you give your money for the sustenance of the Lord and his worship and his work, as you give your money to cause the spread of the gospel to go out even further, you're not suffering loss. Rather, you're storing away treasure for the future, not in this age, of course, but in the age to come. How does Jesus put it in Luke 12? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's an eternal perspective on all of our wealth that we must have to be faithful stewards. And really that eternal perspective ties everything that we've seen this morning. To be faithful stewards of our money, we must live in the present in the light of the future, knowing that we are going to die with nothing and therefore we must be content during this short stint on earth that we live as a steward, we must guard our hearts, not setting our hope, our eternal hope, on fleeting riches, but on God. And as we do that, we will give our money away and be storing up treasures in heaven. Do you see how all that we've said is forward-looking, eternal-looking, living in the present in light of the future? May God make it so as he works this grace of stewardship within our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, hear us for all that we've looked at this morning is 
impossible for us to do. Lord, our God, we thank you for how generous you have been to us, not least in giving to us your Son, our Savior. Father, we ask that you would help us to imitate you, to imitate Christ, to give ourselves away, to enjoy this life that you have given to us, and to generously enable others to enjoy it with us, that we might store up treasures in heaven. Guard our hearts, O Lord. Help us to keep a vigilant watch over our hearts. And make us, we pray, content knowing that we are but stewards. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.